I certainly wish sometimes God would let me choose the message that I'm going to preach. That'd be so nice to have that privilege. I'd like to have the privilege to be able to say that I'm going to preach to you today uh, the gospel, and it's going to be an aroma of life unto life for all those who hear. But in reality, we know that the Bible makes it expressly clear that the gospel will be preached and the Lord's message would be given at times by the prophets and by you and others when we proclaim the gospel. And there will be those who hear and it will be a message of death unto death. That's what the Bible tells us. This morning I thought about giving you a uh, sermon illustration by walking in with a caution sign strapped to my neck <laughs> and blinking lights that say, caution, sin it's always at work hardening your heart. I can tell you that because that's what we're going to see in the passage today. We've had some incredible truths that speak so deeply to our souls conveyed to us from Isaiah chapter 6. As we think about exalting the King of glory for all of His holiness, no attribute in the Bible is trebled three times. And we know it's the Hebrew of superlative, the emphasis upon the fact that Holiness is so vitally important to the nature of our God. He is holy. Holy. The Hebrew writers couldn't, couldn't do it with two words of repetition. They had to put three in there to show us that our God is holy. And then from that we learn uh, angelic response or the seraphim, the burning one's response to him. And then we know Isaiah's response of self-condemnation for his sin in the face of a, a holy God. But the truth we hear today is a difficult truth. It, these are hard sayings. I know that when you come to church, you, you desire at times to hear a positive message. And you want to walk away from the church being uplifted and feeling pretty good about yourself. But there's no way that we can look in to Isaiah's commission and call from God without understanding that this was a negative assignment. He's called to go and preach to a people about imminent judgment with words that essentially are words that are going to harden hearts and confirm them in their stubborn rebellion. So what we see given to Isaiah is a message of judicial hardening. Isaiah, your expectation should be that none will repent. None will turn to the Lord and be healed of their sins. Can you imagine some of our seeker pastors today giving this kind of message to their crowd? Not sure this fits too well with that kind of understanding. The Bible does not always say what we think it should say. The Bible does not always teach what we think it should teach. Sometimes we just have to be honest with ourselves and say, yes, I don't understand. I may not even like it, but this is the authoritative word of the living God that has been given to us. So today we, we arrive at part three. Well, I preached four sermons, right? On Isaiah 6, 1 through 13. The goal was three divisions, three, three sermons. But we had to deal at length with human condition of sin before the Lord. And then the hot coal from the altar. And we spoke at length about propitiation and expiation. Without which no man will ever see the Lord. God must have His wrath turned away. And God must cover our sin in order for us to be saved. That was glorious teaching, right? Won't be so glorious today, all right? No, let's look into the Word of God. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. The Bible says, 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, I thought to myself, the only voice he's heard so far is the seraphic antiphony. He's heard the antiphonal response, repetition back to one another, and all of a sudden now, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, excuse me, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate waste, a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Here's some grace. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Aren't you glad you're not preaching this sermon? Right? Well, here's the message. The third division of the text is we need, we're called by God to witness the call and commission from the King of Glory. Now, we've established he's the King of Glory, right? That's what John sees in John 4. The very first thing he's introduced to when he steps into heaven is the King upon the throne. So he's the King of Glory, and we are called by God to exalt his holiness. And then we are called by God to acknowledge human sin and the need for divine forgiveness. And here we are witnessing the call of God, the King of glory, upon a messenger to take the message. We're going to look at it in three ways. First, we're going to talk about the king calls for a messenger. This is the sovereign call of God upon Isaiah's life. You need to recall what happened in the first seven verses before you get here in order to think about the significance of this. Isaiah, again, is confronted with the holiness of God, the absolute holiness of God, and it is set forth again like no other attribute in all of Scripture. And it's, God is designated as the one who is thrice holy. And again, the repetition in the Hebrew language is important. It's taken to the third degree. The blazing holiness of God and holy angels that have never known anything about obedience or sin are covering their eyes because of the blazing holiness and covering their feet because they go ahead and recognize their creatureliness before the king upon the throne. And then we saw what takes place when human sin comes in contact with the holy God. This is always the case. When holiness meets unholy, there must be atonement. And Isaiah sees the self-condemnation upon himself in the presence of God. And he says, woe is me for I am absolutely destroyed. And God in an act of awesome atonement, atoning work, the angel flies over, takes that burning coal from the altars with tongues and touches it to Isaiah's lips and the Bible says that in that act, he's declared clean. Wrath is removed. Sin is taken away. And it's only after reconciliation that Isaiah is ready to serve. It's not flipped around the other way. It is after reconciliation. I hope you understand how vitally important Isaiah 6, 5 through 7 is theologically, biblically, 
Old Testament-wise, New Testament-wise, that is so vitally important because what is the condition of man? It is radical enmity against God. That is in our nature. We are by nature God-haters. Now, that doesn't sound good to the U.S. of A., but ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what Colossians 1.21 tells us. That we're alienated from the life of God in our mind and we're at enmity with God. Romans 8.7 says the exact same thing. That we by nature, we're wicked. We are by nature uh, against God and hostile against Him. Psalm 58 verse 3, David speaks to the same thing. That we come forth wicked from the womb. Well, that's pretty strong, isn't it? I mean, I thought it was totally sufficient to, to blame all of my children's sin upon my wife. Say, it's Natalie's fault, right? But in reality, we know that the Bible teaches us that every child ever born comes into this world bearing the stain of Adam's sin. They're so cute when they're little, correct? They're vipers in diapers. <laughs> and we absolutely know it, right? Did you know that every... Uh, all the seeds of every sinful act and choice you will ever make in life are present at nature. At the fact that you are created. In your nature are present all of those things. So, in light of this, folks, do you see how important reconciliation is? That we must have an intermediary. Job cried for it in Job 9 and Job 19. Cried out for that mediator. And so, the Lord Jesus Christ is that. So, up to this point, again, Isaiah, uh, he has been very... Impressed, I'm sure, with seraphic voices singing to the Lord, extolling His holiness. And now, talk about grace. God could have sent any one of these holy angels to do this bidding. As a matter of fact, Daniel 7 basically talks about myriad, myriads of angels, meaning millions of angels that are ready for the beckoning call of the Lord to do anything He asked them to do. But talk about grace. God is pleased to use the instrumentation of human beings to fulfill His call. And isn't that awesome that he would even include us? So, this is most definitively uh, a work of the divine trinity. Do you see it here in the text? And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for? I mean, who else is he talking to? Right? There's no question. And older theologians and newer scholars, whoever that might be, most people, for sure, say this is an understanding of the divine trinity. There's a communication going on in the council of heaven between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who will go for us? Now, he doesn't say, whom shall I send, based upon the fact that God doesn't have full knowledge. Right? That's not what's going on here at all. It's not because God lacks information. It is a, is a call to to prompt the heart of Isaiah and anyone who has been reconciled by this God upon this throne, that our response should be one of submission to the king. So, you know, it's interesting that we treat our God at times like he should be just as surprised as we are that we just got saved. As if God doesn't have full understanding and full knowledge at all times, at all, and every aspect of it. So the question is presented to Isaiah in such a way to draw out that gratitude for the fact that he's been saved by grace through faith. For the fact that he's been reconciled to this God of blazing holiness. Who will speak on my behalf? And so the language is that of prophetic ministry. He's carrying out a message given to him by the Lord. And God is pleased to use the instrumentation of a human being 
human preachers to proclaim the truth in such a way that it glorifies our God, accomplishes all of His purposes. Now check this out. The one who was humbled to the dust in absolute self-condemnation says with great eagerness, two words in the Hebrew, Behold me! Behold me! Now, he couldn't say anything. He couldn't join the angels in singing because his lips were unclean. And now, the first thing that comes to his mouth, having been reconciled to God, is behold me. It's awesome. It's an awesome picture. It's like childhood quality here. Here am I. I'm over here. Can't you see me, Lord? I will go. Send me. Those who have their sins atoned for. Those who are reconciled by God through Jesus Christ have within their very bosom, from new birth, a desire to serve the Lord and King, the God of glory. If you're saved today, it's in you. Have you ever contemplated why it's so hard to get people to serve in the body of the church? How many times have I stood up and said, well, we need ten Sunday school teachers. And all the way in the corner of the balcony, over here in the right corner, behold me! Do you ever have that happen? Behold, send someone else. That's what you're really saying. We know this. Have you ever contemplated why it's so difficult? Why don't we have a response like this? Need 10 Sunday school teachers. Yeah, right here. I'm ready. Send me. Did you know, folks, that the desire to serve in us is brought about by the new birth? And you need to be very careful even as redeemed people, that you don't let that die. Why? Because there's enough flesh in every one of us to allow that call upon God in our life to serve Him to die out. You need to be careful this morning. You need to stop and pump the brakes and ask, God, what am I doing in the act of... You know you're saved to serve, folks, not just to sit on your blessed assurance. We are saved to serve the King. and the recon- This is a paradigm in Isaiah 6. Of what it ought to look like when someone is reconciled back to God. So Jerry Bridges says, Isaiah gave his life in service to God. And Bridges goes on. He essentially offered himself a blank check to the Lord. And said, God, you fill it out. That's good preaching. It is. He offered himself to the Lord. So what a paradigm. A vision of the enthroned King of glory. And all of his holiness leads to worship. It also leads to Isaiah's acute awareness. And that's why I took time on one of the points to say, this is why all of our worship should be affected by Isaiah 6, all of our preaching should be affected, and all of our evangelism should be affected. Right? It ought to be affected by this paradigm. When we see God for who He is, we have an acute awareness of our sin in the sight of God, and it leads us to cry out against ourselves, which leads to the atoning work for our sin, which leads to hearing the call from the Lord as a messenger, which leads to Isaiah saying, Here am I. I voluntarily serve. What a paradigm it is for us in entering the Lord's service. My question is, are you available to serve the Lord? Are you available this morning? Kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? Folks, we haven't even got to the difficult part. All right? How about uh, being a volunteer? Should not be difficult to get people who are transformed by the grace of God to serve in various capacities in church life. Never should be 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. Never should be that. I'll challenge you to read the scripture. Those who are radically saved are radically transformed to serve. So that's the first part. He calls a messenger. Number two, 
The king of glory entrusts a messenger with the message. Well, again, Isaiah, here's what you're going to encounter when you take this message to preach. Uh, The message entrusted to you is both shocking and it's going to be shocking for generations to follow. We know this from the Bible. And it's a surprising work of judicial hardening by the Lord upon the Israelites for refusing to listen to the word of the Lord. So, wherein the message was a live coal that touched Isaiah's lips and he was converted and, and uh, sins atoned for, the same divine coal can be given from the altar that produces judicial hardening. Same live coal that burns and sears with power and the messenger himself has no power to change the message. I'd be saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Let, let me, I, this is new to me. Uh, I know I pronounced a few woes in the first five chapters, but come on, Lord. I'd rather, I prefer a different ministry to start off with. But he's called by God to drop that live coal into the ears of the people, which heavenly fire will go unquenched. And Isaiah cannot be silent. It's like Jeremiah, it's in his bones. He's got to proclaim what's there. So the text presents our God as ordaining that he will harden the hearts of the Israelites against his word with the outcome that they will refuse to repent and be healed and turn from their sins. It confirms a pattern that's in the Israelite people that we pick up early in Deuteronomy. They're a stiff-necked people. They were rebellious against the Lord. Acts chapter 7. Y'all know that book? Because we'll enter into chapter nine, the end of chapter 19 this coming Sunday and pick back up Acts. But in chapter 7, verse 51 when Peter is preaching, he says that you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. So therein is the continual repetition of it. It didn't affect just the Jews in Isaiah's day. It affects them in Acts 7 and today. A judicial hardening. So the message is presented as commands from the Lord to the Jewish people. The doom of the people is fixed, according to this text. There's no second chances and there's no relenting. The Assyrian captivity is right there on, their, on them. The Babylonian captivity is right there on them. It's fast approaching. And again, I'm sure Isaiah would prefer that they repent. But it's not about what Isaiah prefers, but it is actually what God has determined that will glorify him. So ultimately, it is the ministry of hardening hearts that keeps God's truth unintelligible. This presents Isaiah with one of the most barren and fruitless ministries in all of Scripture. Liken unto Jeremiah, who preached for 40 years without a convert. How would you like to sign up for that pastorship? Right? Here's the interesting thing about verse 9. In the translation that you probably have in front of you, it probably says, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Could you pull up the NLT for me, Mitch? Let me show you the actual wording. Let's see. That's a little too too far down. Uh, Nine and ten. Uh huh. And he said, "Go and say to the people, keep on." Is this the NLT? Okay. And he said, "Yes, go and say to this people." Uh oh, that's different, right? Not as it not as it is in a continuous action, but listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. So, in essence, y'all ready for a good one? This is a cal infinitive absolute construct in Hebrew. The strongest infinitive you can possibly have in the Hebrew language. And what he is saying is, you're going to hear it with clarity. And, and it's actually in the command mode. 
Isaiah is commanded by God to go and speak it. They're going to hear it clearly. You're going to listen carefully. You're going to hear it, but you're not going to understand. You're going to watch closely, but you're not going to learn anything. And then he says, harden the hearts of these people. Plug up their ears. Shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn to me for healing. Man, that's strong, isn't it? Now, folks, I can't make that. I wish I could make that mean something else. But that's exactly what's going on here in the text. In the most emphatic way possible, the Bible is saying that God gives, he gives Isaiah the message to preach with clarity, but I will not let them hear, see, or no. Literally, when it says make their ha- it literally says make their make fat their hearts is the rendering. It means to desensitize their hearts with the message you're going to preach. We know that the gospel itself has this effect when it is preached. Do you know that the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the heart? We know this from the word if you're a Bible student. So again, see with their eyes. Hear with their ears, understand with their hearts. Did Isaiah like this calling? I'm not sure he did because look at that response. Then I said, Lord, how long? Now you're never allowed to say why from a sovereign God upon a throne. I get so sick and tired of all the books written about how to be honest with God and say why. Are you God? Have you read the book of Job? No, I don't think why is a good response to a sovereign king. How long? Do I preach this message is a good response. But here, here's the deal. Uh, our, you know, we must see in the Scripture that God does hold the prerogative to withhold grace. Now, we don't like to think about that. Let's be honest. We, that's the last thing that we want to think about. But ladies and gentlemen, in the understanding of Scripture, the fact of the matter is, in our explanation of grace today, we have it way too wide, and in the Bible it's far narrower. It really is. In God's Word, grace is narrow, but so much deeper than you could ever imagine. And the fact of the matter is, when we seem to throw out universalism, that when it's all said and done, everybody's going to be saved, and and God's going to let everybody in heaven. Folks, how does that fit Isaiah 6? That cannot fit. There's no way that holy can confront unholiness without sending forth a mediator to give us righteousness so that we can come into His presence. So where does the blame go when God doesn't respond in grace to the Jewish people? In Scripture, the blame does never, go, never goes back to the God upon His throne. It goes back to the depravity in, human, in the human heart. You see in Scripture, God hardening, hardened hearts. Don't we? You don't see him hardening neutral or seeker hearts in Scripture. That's refreshing to me. It ought to be to you too. That when we read out through the Scriptures, if it's a neutral heart toward God and or a, uh, a heart that's tender toward the Lord or is seeking the Lord, you never see judicial hardening going on. It's in the heart of those whose heart are hardened against the Lord. Now these principles are fleshed out in the New Testament I said that to you before. Uh, we, we need to track through the Bible and find out what Scripture says. How does the New Testament mesh with this? And so here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, I said this as we started out the sermon. Beginning in verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. But thanks be to God 
who in Christ always leads us into triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And Paul says what I would say as a preacher. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is adequate for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. Was Isaiah commissioned by God? He may not have liked the message, but he couldn't alter the message. He had to bring what the Bible said for him to say. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So here we see when the gospel is preached, for some, it, when, they, when it hits their nostrils, it's an aroma of the sweetest thing you could ever imagine. Right? Because it brings life to life, but death to life. But for others, when they have it in their nostrils, it's an aroma. They gag when they smell it. They gag when they think about death to self and being alive to Christ. And, and they're perishing according to the word of the Lord. Listen to what Jesus has to say about this difficulty of judgment, hardening of hearts. Matthew chapter 11. Hard sayings, right, church family? Nonetheless, the Bible, right? The Word, authoritative Word, chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will be exalted to heaven? Question. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have reminded, remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment, at the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Woo, folks. That's strong, isn't it? There you see some of that judicial hardening going on because their hearts were hardened to the Lord. Can we also say something about degrees of accountability before God in Judgment Day? Well, that'll cause you to stop and think, won't it? From what you've heard at this church, preached from the Word of God, your accountability is going to be greater. Because you heard it. Because you heard it a lot. Because you heard it over and over and over and over and over again and hardened your heart possibly against the Lord. And then notice what Jesus said. At this time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And here's that universal call for everybody to come to Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Folks, don't get a mental Charlie horse here. We're terrified of the Bible. When there's tension, we're like, whoa, we can't take that tension. Remember, God's ways are inscrutable. That means they're hard to understand. You're a human being. And in the same verse where God says, only the ones the Father reveals to him shall come to me, he turns right around and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Here's my lesson for you today. If you want to be saved, you can be. God can save anybody. 
anytime, anywhere that believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's exactly what the Bible presents for us. Don't walk away, oh, i got a mental Charlie horse. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Live with it. That's exactly what the Holy Word of God teaches us. Listen to Deuteronomy 29. This kind of will blow your mind a little. Deuteronomy chapter 29 falls suit in what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11. Chapter 29, listen to verse 2 and four, two through 4. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Well, that's strong. That's hard words. I, I realize that. That's not the message I prefer to preach. God's going to harden your heart. You're not going to see, you're not going to hear, and you're not going to know. But that's exactly what's happening in the Word of God. Let me show you again in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. Do you know, sometimes when we're preaching along, well, I forgot my watch today, and that's not good for y'all. But, but here's the deal. Sometimes when we're preaching, we've heard in preaching classes, Brother John, that parables are great sermon starters and great illustrations to give you clarity and hear the truth and see the truth. But that's not what Jesus said. Why he used parables is found here in chapter 13. Listen to it. Verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is thus fulfilled. You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Again, dull heart, continual dulling by God. Hardened heart, continual hardening by the Lord. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and, they, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. Boy, are we accountable today. And did not see it, and, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. One final text, John chapter 12, which we highlighted when we talked about who did Isaiah see upon the throne. We know who he saw. He saw the Son of God according to John chapter 12. And so, listen to, what, listen to the run-up to Isaiah chapter 12, verse 40, 41. The Bible says in verse 36, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For, 
Again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. We know he's talking about this particular time when he sees the Lord. Do you know, folks, Scripture reveals that Satan has blinded the eyes of people, unbelievers, against the work of the Lord. Let me show you this. You don't have to flip to it. The second Corinthians, which we've already been in, just a little further down from where we read before, chapter 4, verse 4. The Bible says, In their case, the God of this world... Uh, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as our Lord, with ourselves as servants of Jesus Christ. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same Spirit of God that spoke the world into existence and gave it life is the same Spirit of God that speaks into a lost sinner's heart and gives you light to be able to understand the gospel. That's the strength and power of God's Word spoken to us. Is this troubling for us? I think it is. But here's what we think. We always think that God is, when the message is preached, God is always at work softening hearts and working out salvation to everyone that He sends the, the messenger to. But in reality, some, sometimes God raises up a messenger specifically to preach the Word that's going to harden hearts and confirm their condemnation before the Lord. Well, that's a hard message, isn't it? I don't have any delight whatsoever in preaching that. As a matter of fact, I prefer to say something else. But I have to stick to what the Bible says. You have to preach what the Word says. Finally, the king offers grace in securing a remnant. Now, I want to ask you to flip over to one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. Romans chapter 11. Let me show you as we close up tonight what God is going to offer in grace. Can I do that as we close up today? You may say it's been long enough to be tonight, right? The Bible talks about a stump and a believing remnant and a tree and how that uh, a tenth will rise up and they're going to be destroyed as well. But then God is going to have this stump that is cut off that's going to have sprouts coming off of it. What? Pretty awesome, isn't it? That God is going to have a remnant. So I liken Isaiah's response of saying how long. I liken that response to Jesus when he looked out over the multitudes and desired that they would come to him. I liken it to Paul who said, I would have myself to be accursed if my fellow Jews would come to Christ. That's the way a preacher ought to be moved when it comes to the gospel. You want people to trust Jesus Christ and not be hard to the gospel. And so... Isaiah cries out in humility, Unto when, Lord? How long? How long will the hardening go? And God replies that his ministry must continue until the Lord carries out those judgments against Israel, which we see in the Bible, in, in Isaiah, and in other prophets. God started this warning in Deuteronomy 28, verses 49 through 52. But amazingly here we see the grace of the Lord that he will have a remnant. And like a tree failed, leaving its healthy root system so this remnant, remnant will be brought into the kingdom. Notice it doesn't say this remnant will become the kingdom. It says this remnant will be brought into the kingdom. The holy seed 
is going to be the remnant of survivors and the stump that will flourish under God's hand. He speaks of a Jewish nation here which has generally rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know this. In similar terms, you've got an olive tree with fruitless branches that have been stripped off but with a holy root system. And no matter how desolate the land becomes, God is not finished with the nation of Israel. With the Jewish nation. So the people will be humbled to the dust, then exalted to heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's walk through this incredible chapter as we conclude. I ask then, we are in uh, Romans chapter 11. Is everybody there? I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah and how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? Well, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Praise God that God had a remnant even in Elijah's day. And Elijah think, well, I'm the only one standing for Jesus. But in reality, God said, I got 7,000 more. That's good, right? So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Folks, if y'all can be saved by your works, there's no need for grace. But the fact is, you can't be saved by works, and I'm so glad for grace, right? What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, no, this is my way of question. What then? Did Israel fail to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them, lest their eyes be darkened, lest their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? We have to ask the question, why, is, why did God give this judicial hardening to the Israelites? Well, here's at least one reason for this. And if you say, I don't like that, well, you've got to take it up with the Lord. Because here's what the Bible says. By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in so much then as I am a, an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean by life from the dead? If, so, awesome. You're looking into the mystery of God. You're looking to, as the end, of, we're going to read the end of verse, chapter 11, but you're looking into the unsearchable, inscrutable ways of God. How in the world could God raise up a people, harden their hearts, and then turn around and use that as jealousy to win me and you to Christ? That's amazing. You need to bow before this God. He's sovereign. He's holy. And if you read the text, as I just read the text, you'll note that one of the reasons for that hardening was so that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. And you would see the book, you would see Acts flow out where the gospel is headed to the ends of the earth. Thank the Lord that He would save sinners like us. 
Now verse 16, let's put all this together. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. All right, here's kind of the first lump or stump part. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now listen. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, we're the wild grafted in branches outside of the Jewish race by nationality. And now sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith so that you do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Whew. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness, God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His, like, in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Here's the remnant. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a, a valid olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into the own olive tree? Now, folks, I know this can be confusing, but this is down the line. This is in the eschaton in the future, that God is going to save a remnant of Jews and add them to the kingdom of God. That is His promise from His Word. Now, verse 25. Y'all are doing so good. Listen. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I mean, Brother John, I have to think, eschatologically, that when God brings in the last ones grafted in, Gentiles, and you began to see God redeeming Jewish nation, you better wake up. Right? I mean, you have to see that from there, that God is going to accomplish this. Will there be signs toward the end? I think so. But don't play the fool and try to predict the date. Okay? And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regard to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Isn't that an amazing statement? But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience. That's everybody. Right? So that He may have mercy on all. Praise God. Oh, the depth. Here's my response to this sermon and ought to be your response. Here's Paul. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For Him, for from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Now listen, Isaiah had a message, and that message was one of judicial hardening. But I've got news for you. 
Today, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, we have a message too. And that message is that the fields are white unto harvest. Y'all get that? Clearly? The fields are white unto harvest. That means there are prepared hearts out there who will hear the gospel and respond and be saved. That's good news. You know, here's the deal. Isaiah didn't get to check out the job description before he volunteered. And boy, you church members want to say, Boy, I wish I knew what I was going to do before the preacher asked what I'm going to do. When's the last time you just gave your life as a blank check? Just fill it in. But had he known the job description, I'm pretty sure Isaiah would have had a check in his spirit. But he'd have still obeyed. I have no question about that. So I just, just want to remind you that we have a call from God to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we have a God who is willing to get it done. We have a God who has the goods to save sinners. And we've been told by our Lord, uh, kind of in our lifetime, a different message than Isaiah. And we don't know when God's going to judicially harden a hardened heart. But we do know this, the fields are white unto harvest. And as Dr. Greer has encouraged all of us Southern Baptists, who's your one? We've said this a lot, have we not? If you've been reconciled to God, you want others to know that same reconciliation. If you've got the joy of Jesus in your heart, you want others to know that joy. There ain't many amens today. What's wrong with you folks? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, that's a hard, hard text. Lord, but how many times have we heard Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 and never venture past verse 8? God, we're preachers of the word. And we are called to preach what you have in your word and not to hiccup and bump over hard sayings. Lord, I promised this church one thing when I came. I will preach the word. I will not jump over verses. I, will, I refuse to be labeled. I'm labeled as a preacher of the gospel. To preach the word of God. Like you've given it to us. And Lord, I thank you for the word. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, my prayer is that today, the aroma of the gospel of Jesus Christ will come into someone's nostrils. And they will be birthed into the kingdom of heaven. Where it becomes life to them. Lord, let that happen at your sovereign decree and your will to save sinners. Thank you for that, Father. We don't understand you hardening hearts. It's, it's inscrutable, Lord. It, it's, it's out of our mindset. We, we can't understand that. It's a hard saying. But that's what your word says. But Lord, thank you for the flip side of the hardening. That we're able to hear the gospel. That the gospel reached me. And reached people in the pew of this church. And the gospel that's going to reach to the remotest parts of the world, in the power of the gospel to save sinners. Lord, help us to think about the fields wide into harvest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.